uh, do his thing. So, Father, we just come before you. Uh, we thank you again for your grace, your mercy, and your love for us through Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray for Carl this morning as he shares. I uh, pray that you would just continue to, to lay on his heart uh, the things that you want him to say. Uh, Lord, that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, to each of us, no matter where we're at, Lord, you meet us in those places, in the places of hurt and pain, anxiety, fear, whatever it is, Father, if we would just lay those things before you. And so, Father, I pray again this morning that each of us would come with that open heart uh, to see you work, seeking uh, you this morning. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right Thank back. you. Good morning, everyone. Is this on? Can you guys hear me okay? All right, good. Perfect. Um, thank you again for the opportunity to, for, for me to be here. Um, uh, my wife is able to be here this service, which is always an encouragement. You will probably hear or see my two crazy ones um, running around at some point after the service. Um, I work for CrossNet Ministries, a Christian nonprofit not too far from here. Um, a couple of thank yous before we get into our message today. Um, I want to say thank you to you as a church, first and foremost, for your support of our ministry, financially, volunteers, all of those things. We appreciate you um, and are humble to partner with you in ministry. And secondly, um, our church and organization partnered together for four weeks of church experiences at CrossNet just two months ago in April. And I see familiar faces, those of you who helped and gave and served. So thank you for doing that. It was an amazing four weeks. I love being able to share the, the pulpit with, with Pastor Adam and our participants thoroughly enjoyed it. As I read surveys, it is something that they want to do. So we're going to continue to pray about that and seek wisdom for what that looks like for a continued partnership with your church. Um, I am not Pastor Adam, so sorry about that. Um, I'm sure he is resting and enjoying his time away. Um, I was able to be with you all last week uh, for the first service, and I wanted to just kind of hear a little bit of the context about what you were talking about in this Judges series, and uh, extremely convicting message, right? As we think about the idols in our life, Pastor Chris um, communicated to us that maybe the greatest threat to God isn't atheism. Maybe the greatest threat is you and I asking God to exist with other little g-gods, I was convicted by that. And my idol, and maybe, maybe your idol as well, is, is a cell phone, right? A smartphone. I say the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check my phone. What emails did I get? What's going on on social media? How many selfies can I take before I even get out of bed? The last thing I do before my head hits the pillow is that same exact thing looking at my emails, checking social media. That was my idol. That is my idol. Um, and I wrestle with that. And I'm sure that each and every one of us has something that maybe we, we ask God to exist with, and that is our shame, and we need to correct that, and we need to fix that. Um, I know you guys have journals and you have books that you're working through specifically about um, judges. So uh, maybe you've read a little bit um, ahead of time. I hope you were able to do that. We're going to be in Judges chapter 3 today. But our title for this message is Expect the Unexpected. I think a very fitting message and extremely relevant if you've been able to go through that text. Chapter 3 is complete chaos. It's amazing. Um, the strategy, the story is awesome. Expect the unexpected. As I think about that word, expect, I think expectations or assumptions. And I shared a story this morning um, 
with the nine o'clock crowd. Let me first say this. I said to the nine o'clock crowd, I love the nine o'clock service because those are the people that are awake early enough to get here. They've had breakfast, but you all, 1035 service, my wife and I attend the 1045, we fit in well here. We are the ones that needed two cups of coffee. It took us about a half an hour, 45 minutes to even get our kids out of bed and get them dressed. So I can identify with you guys. I see, I see all the young families in here. This is great. So um, I shared a story this morning with the, the uh, first service about uh, this, this idea of expectations and something that someone said to me. I was speaking at a youth retreat. This was not Chris in that retreat that I spoke on, but I was speaking at another youth retreat. This is some years ago. I was actually in college during this time, um, and I played basketball at LBC, so I came late to the retreat. I wasn't there Friday night. I came early Saturday morning, and one of the ladies that, that ran the camp um, came up to me when she found out that I was the speaker, I was the guy, and she said, you're not what I expected. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, who, who says that to someone? <laughs> right? And, and then I was just like, what are you talking about? She was like, oh, I thought like NASCAR, Carl Edwards, you know, like, and I looked at her, I was just like, you thought that you booked Carl Edwards <laughs> and was going to pay him $100 to speak at your weekend retreat. <laughs> and... I don't know what was going on in her. And you can ask my wife. I said this morning. You can ask her. She's here. Um, Mary, they went on to put that white dude's face next to my bio, right? <laughs> so crazy. Like, I think about I am, I am quite a few shades darker than him. I do not do backflips out of vehicles, and I don't have his bank account. I wish I did, but I do not. Um, Ann Mead Ash, I don't think she's here this weekend. She and I were talking this week. She's a huge NASCAR fan. I think you guys know who that is, right? Ann, okay. And um, I didn't even know he retired, but she's the one who told me. And I was like, I didn't know I retired, but now I can do ministry because I'm retired and I can serve and use all my money, to, my money for good. So expectations, right? If I was standing in that lady's shoes, I would say that my expectations, my assumptions put me in an extremely awkward position an extremely awkward scenario where his face would be next to from Baltimore, Maryland, student at Lancaster Bible College. Like it's, expectations get us in a lot of trouble. And that's our message title for today, Expect the Unexpected, because as we look at the words in this passage, you are going to see some unpredictable things take place that maybe wouldn't fit with our norms and how we see things work. The book of Judges is going to take us on this journey following the Israelite people and this roller coaster trajectory of them doing evil in the sight of the Lord and then getting to a place of repentance and confessing sin and asking God to deliver them. They do evil, they confess, and they continue the cycle over and over again. I don't want to point any fingers specifically at them. I think it's really easy for us to read through the Bible often and say, oh my goodness, how could they do such a thing? I would never do that. But I think we fall guilty many times. Pastor Chris talked about the same exact thing last week. We place idols before God when God commands us to say, hey, you will have no other God but me. You will serve no other God but me. But we do the same thing, whether it's a tangible thing like a cell phone, whether it's a specific hobby, whether even it's a spouse, whether it's our kids like Pastor Chris talked about last week. We do the same exact thing. So I think Judges is an amazing book for us to look at, to learn from, and apply to our Christian faith as well. That leads us to our focus today. You should see this in your notes as well. If forgiveness and salvation are real to you, you 
will live them out in your life. If forgiveness and salvation are real to you, you will live them out in your life. And I think we should pause and just sit with this for a little bit. We probably could even sit and stew on this for a little bit for the rest of our time. This is a convicting statement. This is an extremely convicting statement as someone who calls himself a Christ follower because forgiveness and salvation are real to me. I place my faith, my belief in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. So therefore, if that is real, then I should live that out in my life. And oftentimes, we don't live that out in our lives and we need to wrestle really with this and just kind of pause and sit on that. So if you get nothing else from our time today, please, please take this home with you and spend some time kind of meditating on that. I also want us to understand this, that yes, we have been saved from something, but there's more to it than that. Those of you who call yourselves Christians, yes, you have been saved from something. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You've been saved from hell, eternal separation from God. That is true, that is good, that is excellent. But I believe that the Christian faith is so much more than that, right? A lot of pastors say that insurance policy, right? Assurance policy. So much more that I believe we are saved to something, that living it out. We are saved to something to live out in our Christian faith. And just a few of them for you. We are saved first to worship God. We are saved to worship God for who he is, to honor him, to give him the glory that he is due. Second, we are saved to testify to a broken and sinful world about the life transformation that has happened in each and every single one of us. We are saved to do that. Great commission and all. Next, we are saved to live out the one another statements, to love your enemy, to live out those one another statements. And lastly, you see in the book of John, we are saved to live an abundant life. And that's not necessarily a life of prosperity, but it's a life full of joy because of the things that Jesus has done in you. The gospel is beautiful. I uh, remember my youth pastor, his name's Aaron still serving to this day in a church in Baltimore, will say this catchy, cliche phrase about the gospel and about Jesus. He would say, Jesus died for you. Why can't you live for him? You guys didn't like gasp like I did when I heard that for the first time. I'll say it again. He said, Jesus died for you. Why can't you live for him? And it was amazing as a young man when I heard that, and I said, man, that, is, that, 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 that changes me. That stirs something up in me because there is truth, because there is forgiveness and salvation in the gospel. Because of Jesus' death and his brutal, his brutal beating and his resurrection, I can now have life. And that should cause something in us to stir up, and that should cause change in our lives, and us, for us to want to live our lives differently than the way we were before. It should. So forgiveness and salvation are real to you, will live that out. So let's get into our text. Judges chapter three, in the, in the pages, um, in the Bible in your seats, that's gonna be page 205. We're actually not gonna stop at verse 11 right now. We're gonna be looking at this whole entire chapter and I'm gonna kind of break it up a little bit as we go from there. So Judges chapter three, verses seven through 11 will be the first section that we're gonna look at. We're gonna be introduced in this chapter to three judges three judges. I'm actually going to teach them to you this morning a little bit of out of order how they come up. We're going to talk about Othniel first. We're going to talk about Shamgar, and then we're going to talk about Ehud. Ehud is um, most of that chapter section, so I wanted to end with him 
because we want to spend a good bit of time there. So if you're in Judges chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 7. I'm going to give you preface now. I am probably mispronouncing all of these names of the king, so I apologize. It's not heresy. I just can't articulate it that well, so I'm, I'm sorry. So verse 7, verse 7 in chapter 3. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, this is the theme. We'll see that twice in this chapter. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served images of Baal and Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushan Rashnathim of Aram. And the Israelites served Cushan Rashnathim from Aram for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out, this is that repentance piece, but when they cried out to God, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save him. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge. He went to war with the king and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel died. So first section First judge we are introduced to is this man here, Othniel. Again, repetitiveness is going to be taking place just so we can get it this morning. The Jews, once again, fell into this trap of forgetting who God was. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, The cycle in Judges is this, when God raises up a judge... The judge dies, and they fall back into sin. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. God raises up a judge, and that cycle continues. So this is what we see in the first verse here. And in another translation, God doesn't, it doesn't say God gave them over to the enemy. It actually says God sold them over to this king. And four times in the book of Judges, it uses that language that God sold them. Kind of like if you think of slavery language, right? The Jews were really acting like slaves, so God sold them like they were slaves. Think about Exodus. Moses delivered his people from the Pharaoh. They were in Egypt. Delivered them. They spent years wandering the wilderness. Okay? And while they were wandering, a lot of, a lot of things stirred up in them. But one of those things that stirred up while they were wandering was complaint. So they complained about, one of the main things they complained about, not necessarily was leadership, but they complained about food, Right? Over and over, they complained about food. So what does that tell us? They were slaves to their appetites. They even longed to go back to Egypt to eat onions. They were slaves to appetite. And we see the same pattern happening uh, time later in the book of Judges where they were slaves to idols. They were slaves to other things before the God that has over and over again delivered them from evil. I don't know what their persecution looked like. I don't know what their slavery looked like. But for eight years, they were in captivity. And finally, light bulb goes off. Finally, they cry out to God and they repent. And how does God respond to them? God responds to them, first of all, with compassion. And he raises a deliverer. He raises our first judge, Othniel. That's a really cool picture. I don't know who found that, but that's awesome. That's a really good picture. He raises the judge. God sends the Holy Spirit to empower Othniel for his position, for his status, and to do the work that God has commanded him. God delivers the people of Israel and their peace, oh, sorry, and their land had peace for 40 years. 
40 years. So where do we start as we break down just these couple of verses? I think there's something important for us to understand. Othniel is a great character, a great judge, and we see that for 40 years of peace, but it has to start somewhere else. It has to start with the attitude of the Israelites. It has to start, where did the change happen? The change actually happened with repentance. It happened with repentance. And repentance is crucial for renewal and restoration. This is in your notes if you like to take notes. Um, Repentance is crucial for renewal and restoration. Restoration, being restored back into the right relationship, the right view. It all started with an attitude of repentance, of confession, of understanding that, hey, we are not in a good place. We're in a bad place. We need to change our status. God brought about renewal and restoration through raising up Othniel. Not only did he rescue this nation from bondage, he also served these people for 40 years and peace was in the land. That means that he managed the affairs of this nation with dignity and with honor. That means through the Holy Spirit's leading in him that his spiritual leadership and his civil leadership brought peace to the land and rest to the land. Othniel, great first judge. So in summary, as you summarize just these first verses, we see a couple of things, right? God sends trouble, God sends leadership, and God ultimately sends the Holy Spirit to empower him to get the job done. Next, we're going to transition to our second judge. He's really the last one mentioned. So go ahead and skip verses 12 to 30, and at the end of this chapter, we're going to look at verse 31. Just one verse, verse 31, Shamgar. After Ehud dies, we'll go back and talk about him. Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. My friends, this dude got one verse. That's it, one verse. And what I'm about to do is make some assumptions about Shamgar and the little bit that we are given about his life and his legacy. One verse devoted to our friend. And what is significant about Shamgar, if you read that verse again, you follow along, it says, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. So what's significant about him is his weapon of choice, his weapon, right? And I'll have pictured on the screen an ox goat. This is a replica. I'm sure there are other variations of what it looked like. But in all simplicity, a ox goad was a strong pole that was 8 to 10 feet long and had a sharp metal spike like you can see here on the end. And really its purpose was to prod and move cattle. And our dude Shamgar killed 600 people with that, 600 Philistines. And as I was reading and studying, some scholars and commentators actually debate whether Shamgar killed them all at one time. If you think about it all at one time, probably Samson comes to your mind, right? And the method he used to kill, about a thousand. Can I give a like, real quick scheduled tangent, real quick? That was just oxymoron, scheduled tangent. Never mind, it's all good. So think about Samson, right? I have my weird, really, this isn't even, this is, sorry, uh, rabbit trail. I have weird thoughts about Samson. So, if Samson killed a thousand people, right, a thousand men, like, can you, like, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, like, standing around, and, like, Samson's in the middle. Can you imagine being, like, number 989, 
or 900 and you see all your homies laying on the ground. Like, why in the world would they keep fighting, right? So my theory is that Samson wasn't a giant and a massive man that we think, but that's not, anyway, that's not part of our story. So Shamgar, Shamgar, you guys can think about that on your own, okay? Shamgar, so that's the debate. Was he, did he kill them cumulatively over a period of time or was it at once? And this is the instrument that he used to kill people, those people, the 600 Philistines. Though only a few words given about his life. Again, I, I think there's some things that we can, some assumptions that we can make about him. First, I think he was probably a man of persistence. Think about if those 600 came at one time. He's a man of persistence. He was also a man that stood his ground in the face of the enemy and allowed the Holy Spirit to work through him and to use him. And lastly, he was a man that used the resources that he had. No armor, no gun. This is what he had. And also doesn't look like he complained about it either. I work for a nonprofit, so that means we do a lot of fundraising to get money to be able to, to do the work that we do. And I know that I often complain to God and say to him, God, if I only had more money, if I only had more volunteers, if I only had more staff, I'd be able to do that. And it doesn't look like Shamgar complained about the resources. He, it looks like he used what he had to be effective. And I try to learn from that. Use what is in front of me to be able to do the work of God. So this should help us understand this. It should help us understand that one job done in the power of God can make you a hero. Not that necessarily hero is our objective in life, but look at Shamgar's life. One job done by the power of the Spirit gave my friend Shamgar a verse in Judges. One verse that talked about his life and his perseverance, his consistency, his ability to not complain and to use the resources that he had. I think it's helpful to understand the culture that we live in. Our world is always looking for better methods. Our world is always upgrading technology. If you have an Apple product, you know that every single month you get a new OS alert. We're always looking to run faster, to be better, to be stronger, to be more efficient. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad by any means, but I think if you think about Christianity and you think about the scope of the Bible and who God uses, I don't think God is always looking for better methods. I think God is looking for faithful people. God is looking for people, men and women, who understand the basics, that understand first that they are broken individuals, and the only way that we can do anything is through the power of God. They understand the power of the Holy Spirit. They understand why strategy. They understand steadfast courage, and that's where it starts. Are you willing to be a vessel used, wrung out for God service? Am I willing to do the same thing? I think it's interesting to think about Shamgar and his life and his lack of military equipment. God doesn't need tanks. God doesn't need armor. He doesn't need cannons. He needs faithful people that are willing to do the work. That's all he needs. That's it. We are going to finish with looking at Ehud. I want to spend most of our time talking about this guy. 
Um, I'm not going to read verses 12 through 30. Um, Hopefully you have done that, or um, I will challenge you to do that when you get home. Um, Verse 12, we pick up, and it says, once again, the Israelites, actually, let me go um, earlier. Let me read verse 11. So there was peace in the land for 40 years, and then Othniel died. So that cycle goes back to the Israelites falling back into sin. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over to Eglon of Moab. He gave uh, control over Israel because of their evil. So God raises another judge, the third judge in what we're talking about this morning. He raises this guy named Ehud. Um, And I'm not going to read this passage, but what I would like to do for you this morning is I would like to, to give you my inner Will Smith, who is my favorite actor, and I'm going to act out this scene for you. It's going to be horrible, but you're going to laugh. And that's what we're here for this morning, for you to laugh. Um, amazing truths, an amazing story found in verses 12 to 30. As I was studying this, I told Pastor Chris this this morning. When I was reading these, and I, I don't, like, I wanted to grab a bag of chips, some popcorn, and a soda. Like, I was watching a blockbuster movie. This would probably be rated R and most of our children would not be able to watch this, this scene. But it's absolutely amazing what takes place. So we have a couple of characters. We have Ehud, who will be over here. Ehud is the judge, the deliverer that God calls. Over here in the, the text, we read that Eglon is actually really fat. Okay? So this is Eglon. This means fat. All right? So it says that he is a fat king. So what happens in this story, and this is going to be the director's cut because I'm going to be giving you narrative while I'm poorly acting this out, okay? So Ehud is over here, empowered with the Holy Spirit to deliver the people of Israel. Ehud, given the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives him, whether that's revelation, he comes up with a plot or a plan to first craft, make a dagger to kill the king. But he knows that he can't just walk into the courts, kill the king, there's armies, there's guards, all that stuff. So what he says is, hmm, how can I get in there to kill the king? All kings love money, all kings love land. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to this king who has enslaved our people, and we're going to pay tribute. Yes, pay tribute. So they gather up riches and wealth and all that stuff, and they go on a long journey across the short stage, but it's a really long journey. All right, so they're going across, not really, they're not going across the stage, they're going on a long journey over here to Ehud. Ehud is fat, right? And he's sitting on his throne. Sitting on his throne. Sorry, not Ehud. Eglon. (laughs) Sitting on his throne. Ehud walks in and he says to him, King, we are here to pay tribute to you. Ehud, over here, thank you. What do you have for me? Ehud, on this side, we have money and wealth and animals and royal clothes and all that stuff that you like. It's triple X for you, you know? So that's what he's saying to him. So, Ehud and all of his homeboys give Eglon all of the wealth. And they say, thank you, king. You are great and mighty. And they walk away. But our story doesn't end there. Ehud and his friends leave, but he remembers, hey, God has given me a plan, a purpose. I need to deliver the people. So Ehud tells his friends to stay back, and he's going to go by himself. Okay? So he goes back into the courts where the king are, and he says, King Eglon, I have a message from you. So Eglon says, oh, yes, what is your message? And the guards are probably like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't have an audience with the king, but we're going to pause here. We're going to go out of my Will Smith hat for a second and give you a little bit of context. 
the Bible, Judges says that Ehud was a left-handed man. And that is significant in this story. Hopefully you read this. That is extremely significant. And what scholars and commentators say, that that he was left-handed, and that probably means that his right hand was deformed. His right hand was deformed. So in a predominantly right-handed society, a right-handed culture, most of the men, the people in the military would wield their swords on their left side. Does that make sense? So when you're listening to this story and you say, hey, there's significance in him being a left-handed man because where would he wield his sword? Hidden on his right side. So when he comes to say, I need an audience with you, the king and his guards probably looked at him and said, what is this deformed guy going to do for us? He doesn't have a right hand or his right hand's deformed. He can't grab a sword. So maybe when they patted Ehud down, they only grabbed his left side. So the king, Eglon, gives audience to Ehud, and he sends his guards out of the room, sends them out. And that moment, Ehud says, I have a message from the Lord. So in reverence, Eglon actually stands up, stands up, and in that moment, with his left hand, wielding a dagger on his right side, he stabs Eglon in the belly. And that's the rated R part because it says, like, it messed up his bowels and, like, it smelled real gross and it was real nasty. So that's the part that, like, you would have said, this is a gory horror movie. Ehud kills the king, runs, and he locks the doors, and he escapes through the latrine. He runs back down to his men, and he rallies, his, he rallies the armies of Israel. They rally the armies. They go to this river. They cut off passage by the Jordan River so no one from Moab can even escape. And it says that they killed 10,000 of Moab's most able-bodied soldiers and warriors, and God gave Israel the land again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just messing with you. <laughs> my, friend, there's, my friends, there's so much packed into those verses in verse 12 to 30. If you're reading this, this is a masterpiece plot, a masterpiece of strategy that takes place. If you were to line up potential judges to deliver Israel, I guarantee you none of us would have selected Ehud. I guarantee you possibly because of his physical disability or his deformity that we wouldn't even overlook him. But the amazing thing is this. Ehud is a surprising choice maybe for us, but he's not for God. He is a surprising choice, yet he is God's choice. He's God's choice. God used a handicapped individual to fulfill his purpose. And that's not meant to be offensive by any means. It's actually to be, it's actually beheld the exact opposite. This should give any person that has a physical disability significant hope. This should be an encouragement to you because maybe in your mind, or maybe you know someone that thinks this way, you believe that because of your disability, you cannot be used of God. And my friends, that is a lie because God can use you and he will use you. You have to be willing and a faithful vessel. God used a man that in, if you and I were looking at a lineup, we wouldn't select. We wouldn't select. He picked someone that was always picked last for dodgeball. 
because he couldn't throw. That's what God used. He used this man. Chris, I don't know what time was supposed to be done. What time? 12 o'clock? Got it. Sweet. <laughs> Thanks. I won't go. I'll go till 12, 20. All right. So, this should give us hope. Something else that we can also understand is this. God does not always work by what we would consider normal methods. He doesn't work that way. And it's so amazing to think, and I'm so glad that we are not God and that God does not think like us or is not fickle or extremely emotional like we are. He does not use normal methods to fulfill his purpose. He picks the unpredictable and he uses the unexpected. That's just, that's just how he works. And it's so, it, it makes us take a step back and say, hey, this only happened because of God. This did not happen because of our own power and strength. All three of these judges were filled with the Holy Spirit to do incredible things. This was not in their own power, in their own strength. This strategy that Ehud formed in his mind to kill this king, the, the king looked at him with a deformed hand and gave him audience. Whoever gets audience with the king? Esther? That's it? Who else in the Bible gets a single audience with the king? A king. And God worked it out. Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. I think there are some tremendous truths and themes found in these 25, 26 verses of Judges chapter 3. My friends, we understand first that God is a God of justice, right? There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to putting other things above God. There are. He's a God of justice. I said this this morning, but as I think about my wife and I and how we parent our children, we try not to be like child-centered parents and our kids get whatever they want, but something that I've been doing recently, and actually Pastor Adam is one who talked to me about this, is I, I try to lay out two options for my daughter, Macklin. She's extremely like me. Um, I try to lay out an option. I say, hey, mom and dad want you to do this. And if you make this decision, there are going to be some positive consequences that go along with that. But if you choose to disobey and you do not do what mom and dad are asking you, I'm just letting you know there's going to be negative consequences to go along with that choice that you make. And she typically chips, uh, takes, picks the right decision. And that's how God is looking at Israel. He's saying, I have done this for you. I have showed you the way. I over and over again have delivered you. Do you not remember me? But you continue to pick option number two. So there are consequences that go along with that. And those consequences are being sold as slaves to other nations. But we also see not only the justice of God, but we also see his compassion, right? We see over and over again, you actually see this all throughout. This is the whole Bible narrative that God raises a deliverer. He raises a deliverer to free and to, uh, to save his people. Another theme that we see run throughout this chapter is we see the judges being filled with the Spirit and, and doing amazing feats, amazing things through the power of God. As an individual, again, they wouldn't be selected. As an individual, they probably couldn't do the things that they are doing, but it's through the prompting the working of the Holy Spirit, they're able to do amazing stuff. 
we also see even a central theme in the book of Judges, this continual cycle, the central truth that Israel's troubles come when they forget God. Their troubles always come when they forget God and they forget his promises. As I studied, so much overlap happened from what Pastor Chris was talking about last week. Why did they forget? Why did they keep forgetting God's promises? Maybe it's because their parents didn't tell them. Maybe it's because they weren't writing them down. Maybe it's because of the leadership. Why do they keep forgetting? We also see a theme that God doesn't use normal methods, right? He doesn't use normal methods to fulfill a purpose. And I also go back to point fingers at the Israelites again just one more time. It says, if, if restoration and renewal meant anything to the Israelites, they wouldn't keep finding themselves in these, these cycles. They would have lived it out in their life if it meant anything to them, if restoration, renewal, forgiveness, and salvation, deliverance meant anything to them, they would have lived it out. So what about you and I? I go back to our idea for this morning. If forgiveness and salvation mean anything to us, we would live that out in our lives. We would. The gospel is a beautiful thing. The gospel communicates God loved us in our sin, through our sin, through our separation, sent a deliverer to rescue us so that right fellowship could be restored. You think of that image of bridging a gap. Jesus came to bridge that gap for reunion, renewal, and restoration to take place. Another passage I'll read on the screen. It's going to be in 2 Peter it says this, in view of all these things, make every effort to respond to God's promise, promises. Supplement your faith with generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, but those who fail to develop in this list up here, right? But those who develop to live out those fruits of the Spirit, those who develop to love like Jesus loves, those who develop to grow in their faith in this way are short-sighted and blind. Keyword: forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Those who fail to remember how they are supposed to grow, those who fail to remember the rescue that took place in our old man's status, those who forget to remember what we were before Christ redeemed us, forget that they have been cleansed. I have a couple questions. Let me just end with this. I think I'm out of time. Let me just end with this couple questions are going to be in the bottom of your note section. What are you doing to not forget your forgiveness and salvation? Spend some time thinking about this. What are you doing to not forget your forgiveness and salvation? Maybe you're like my wife, Mary, and you journal and you write things down. You write the provision of God and how he's blessed and how he's been faithful. Maybe you write prayers out to him. Maybe you write thanksgivings out to him. Maybe you talk about them with your spouse or a friend, accountability partner. 
Maybe you post them on social media or you tweet them. What are you doing to not forget your forgiveness and salvation? My friends, I don't want to be like the Israelites. I don't want to continue in these patterns. Often I am, but I don't want to continue in these patterns of forgetting who God is. I can't. Last question for you before we transition to communion. When in your own experience have you seen God using unexpected people and or unpredictable means to do great things? If you think hard enough, you can probably even think about your own life and how God has used unexpected scenarios and situations of people in your life or maybe used you in an unpredictable way to do amazing things. Think about that. I think we learn through things that are tangible, that we can hold on to, experiences that we can see, taste, feel, or can you remember something, an experience where God used an unexpected person, person um, or even you? Let me close by this, and we're going to transition to communion. I think Ehud is extremely important, and my acting did not do justice to this text, but it is an, he, he's, an, he's an amazing picture of God using a left-handed person to rescue left-handed people. Ehud actually points us to Jesus. God takes, the pe- takes people, he uses people who are in the margins of society, the outcasts, maybe even wallflowers, in order to show that salvation comes from him and him alone and is not human ability to do any of that. Jesus is the deliverer that many people ignored, that many people overlooked, yet that was the method, he was the method that God chose to redeem us, to redeem this broken and fallen world. That was the method that God used. I say this, nothing about Jesus' life, nothing about Jesus was predictable or even expected, I believe that. If you think of his birth, no one else was born that way, ever. Unpredictable, not expected. His birthplace, the birthplace of a king. His occupation, or even his posse, his friends. None of that was predictable or expected. As you go throughout the course of this week, or maybe let's, let's not even go that far, let's get real now. As you enter communion, think through these questions. Think through your own, if you call yourself a Christ follower, think through your own forgiveness and salvation that has taken place in your life. Where is that old man, that old person, and that new person, that cleansing process, that sanctification, what is that like? How can you not forget those things? And in communion, as you think through the bread and the blood, what does the blood of Jesus mean to your salvation? What does the body of Jesus mean to your forgiveness? Think through these things. Let me close this in prayer. Thank you guys for the opportunity to be with you this morning and to speak. Let's pray. God, humbled to, first of all, be um, able to communicate with you. Thank you for that open line of conversation that we can have with you. God, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for the ability to be in this place of worship to learn more about you and how you use unexpected people to do unpredictable things. 
God, I pray that we would not lose track of the work that you were doing in each and every one of our lives, that we would understand the power of the gospel in its simplicity and its power. God, as we take the cup and as we take the bread, my prayer is that we would ponder these things, these truths, so that we can fall deeper in love with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.